Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh52. This week, we have all four regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the meme site randysrandom.com. Who's next? I'm not second anymore, guys. I was demoted for not talking at the right time, and here we are. (laughs) Go ahead, Kevin. Gary. Okay. I'm Kevin Saffitz. I'm supposed to go third. And uh, I'm the founder of freeprintable.net, which offers a lot, a lot of free printable documents and templates. And right now, let me tell you, it's calendar season, people. People, jeez, uh, the, the yeah, number of people free calendars, man. Yeah, free calendars. And the number of people downloading their 2019 calendars is just off the hook. I'll also, bet the number of people downloading 2018 calendars is surprising. Uh, yeah. Well, no, nothing surprises me about calendars anymore. But yes, yeah, still, people still get in their December and, and uh, coming, coming to the 2018 calendar site and then going, oh, this is the wrong year, and then forwarding themselves to the 2019. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Yep. So uh, a lot of calendars and uh, printable letters uh, from from Santa are are, are are very popular right now as well. Oh, it's nice that you have an arrangement with him to uh, well, to provide try that. To, service. Try to help the big man out. You know. Uh, yeah. That's that's a hard contract to get. You know, a lot of big companies wanted yeah. that. And yeah. You were able to snag that. That's great. Know, it's amazing. What about you, Gary? <laughs> about me? I'd rather hear about Leo. Well, I was wondering if I would get my chance in the order that I thought we agreed on. Um, Recovering from pneumonia, as it turns out, I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer out at askleo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-tech sites, notallnewsisbad.com, something I think we seem to need more and more these days, a daily antidote for everything else in the news, and heroicstories.org, twice-weekly stories of people just being good people that means um, there's only one person left that wait, wait, i think you should you should start spelling note and boom with a p until you get over the pneumonia <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that leaves me i'm gary and i'm going last in this order here and uh yes yeah, so i do macmost.com which is mac stuff and i do wptipsandhacks.com which is wordpress stuff and i also make mobile games and you can find those at clevermedia.com. And speaking of WordPress stuff, it's basically, you know, what I did this week was I came out with a new course. I my the shortest course I've ever done, less than an hour, because it's it's just a short little topic. Because big news in the last week was that WordPress 5.0 came out. So if you don't use WordPress, you're like, what does this mean? But if you do use WordPress, you probably know about it already. Uh, it's a big, huge update to go to 5.0, and it includes a very big change to how people write posts. Um, so, you know, you, you go in and you write a post, and there's like a little editor. It's like a little word processor. And in 5.0, it's all new and fresh and has lots of new functionality. And it's called the Block Editor, although you may have heard of it as the Gutenberg Editor, because that's kind of the code name for it. It's Block Editor and Gutenberg Editor are one and the same. And anyway, this course is on how to use the block editor. It's built for people that are just used to using WordPress and suddenly everything looks different. Um, and here's the best news. Uh, it's free. It's, well, it's actually not free if you just like go to Udemy and, and stumble on it. But uh, I've got a free code. We're, we'll include it in the show notes. Um, and you can get that course for free. 
and like 45 minutes, you're all up to speed on the block editor and WordPress 5.0 and can move forward. So how about you, Kevin? What have you been up to? Kevin? He's been up to a lot. I'm yeah. sorry. Hello. I, I, I think he's been on mute. I <laughs> stepped away. I had a, a thing, an emergency. Oh. Uh, Hi, what was the question? <laughs> what have you been up to this week? Didn't I talk about that? I felt like I did. Um, I, uh, what have I been up to this week? I installed, uh, I had an old Apple, Apple TV, Generation 1 Apple TV, and uh, I haven't touched the thing in years because, you know, it's a Generation 1 Apple TV, and I needed a Linux box for a project, so I decided to see if I could install Linux on that Apple TV. And uh, I managed to do it um, and uh, installed uh, OSMC, which is a media player thing, which r runs on, on uh, Linux. And uh, then on top of that, I got the LXDE uh, graphical environment installed. And I, so now I have this, this Apple TV Linux box that um, actually is running headless, that is without a monitor. Uh, and then I'm able to completely control the thing from my Macintosh uh, over, over X courts. And uh, I tell you, I, feel, I felt like a god when I got it to work. <laughs> I just felt like... like so, so let me ask a stupid question. What do you yeah. do with it? Well, it's a, it's a Linux box. I mean, you could do anything with it. Um, I have a piece of hardware... Uh, for for imaging for getting data off of old five and a quarter floppy disks, uh, it's a piece of hardware called the Chiroflex. And the Chiroflex, for some reason, was not working with my Mac because since I upgraded to Mojave, and I decided just the easiest, I put that in air quotes, uh, way to deal with the problem was to stop using a Mac and to use the Linux box. So basically, I'm using it as a hardware interface to the, this Chiroflex thing. And also, it's just fun to have a Linux box to, you know. Yeah, because you do have a very interesting definition of easy. But. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, f I found some instructions online, and, and uh, you know, basically a little 20-minute video, and I followed instructions. And, and just doing that kind of thing is always fraught. But um, for me, that kind of thing can be tricky, you know, just installing rooting up uh, an old machine and installing a new operating system in a way that wasn't intended. But I felt um, really low stress because if this, if I, if I bricked the Apple TV or something, I'd be like, yeah, oh well, you know, <laughs> and, right. and move on. Um, and maybe that taking, that took the pressure off and made it easier for me. But anyway, I got it to work. And uh, so that's where I spent my time this week. And uh, that was, that was kind of a lot of fun. Cool. So we had a couple of interesting news items. Kevin, you were talking about Google Plus, and I thought that was really interesting. What's up with that? Well, we had talked a few weeks ago how Google Plus was going end of life because they found a bug with the API that, that uh, I believe, let some potentially let user data out into the wild. Well, they just announced, like moments before uh, we started recording this, that they found another API bug uh, affecting another 52 million users and more user data was potentially released. And because of that, they say they are uh, accelerating, they fixed the bug, they say, and but they're accelerating the shutdown of Google Plus from August 2019 to April 2019. I like the way they worded it. They say, uh, 
We want to give users ample opportunity to transition off of consumer Google Plus over the coming months, which I guess is why they're you know shutting it five months earlier. Sooner, right? Yeah, yeah. So there are absolutely some some Google Plus users that are livid uh, about this. The uh, the article that I read was actually more of a a rant on the topic by uh, Lauren Weinstein, somebody that I I follow. He's the one of the internet privacy guys who's mm-hmm. been on the internet like forever um, and, a, and a very uh, voracious Google plus user and also a, a bit of a, a gadfly when it comes to Google's policies and decisions and, and how they're terminating uh, projects that uh, their actual users use like Google reader, Google reader, Google reader. Yeah. That was, you know, that's, that's the canonical yeah. example I'm of still it. mad about that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, but um, his comment on this was something to the effect of, yeah, they're using this this so-called vulnerability really as an excuse because apparently it was uh, in place for maybe a week and there were no signs that it had actually been exploited at all, which means that, you know, sure, there was the potential for, what was it, 54 million uh, users to be affected, but in reality the data so far seems to indicate that exactly zero users were impacted by this. So I just thought that, that his perspective um, as, as, vocif- as, as vocal and as strong as it was, was an interesting counterpoint to Google's own perspective of, yeah, we're doing this for you. We're shutting it down earlier for your protection. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It- yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the c- current kerfluffle with Tumblr, uh, <laughs> which is shutting down lots and lots of of uh, of sites that are, you know, potentially adult oriented or or there's no potentially of, about it. Or, there, okay, some yes, but some of them porn are, on Tumblr. Just so, just say it straight. Yeah, lots you, of it. There's porn on Tumblr. Yes, and but some of it is is I think questionable or it's just people talking about their their right. their lifestyle or right you know whatever some and, of it's art i mean literally some of this is you know yeah. uh, photography of various right. sorts etc yeah absolutely yeah. um and you know so people are, are livid about mm-hmm. certain people are, are livid about that and um there's you know a, a group called archive team which is trying to go in there and and download back up all of all of as many tumblers as they can that are potentially affected by this um, and uh, if actually, if, if you want to do that, if anybody wants to do that, you can go to archiveteam.org and you can run a piece of software that I'm currently running. And basically, I think my computer's downloading a lot of porn right now and then re-uploading it to, to Internet Archive. Um, <laughs> um, uh, we'll call it art. I'm only downloading the art. Uh, so, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. It's just frustrating when companies say they're doing something to help you but really what they're doing is taking away something that they've they had had given well it's it's, it's interesting the tumblr issue is a little bit is a, is a complicated one as well it's not like they suddenly decided that porn was bad i mean i was expecting them if they were going to act on the porn that was on tumblr that it was going to happen after what was it verizon bought them some years ago mm-hmm. right but that never happened right so verizon was you know happy to own a site that uh uh, published porn or allowed people to publish porn. The issue, as I understand it, and Gary, you may have a little bit more on this than I do, um, is that there's a Tumblr app for your iPhone that got kicked out of the Apple iF- uh, iTunes store 
all right, the, yeah, the Apple Store, the App Store, uh, because Apple said, no, no porn. You're not allowed to do that. So we're not going to allow the Tumblr app, which would be used for all of Tumblr. Mm. And their reaction is, okay, we'll ban porn so that we can get our app back in the, in the iTunes store. That sounds familiar. So I probably did read a story about that. Um, it's, it's a problem that with the App Store from day one, really, is like, and this is a great example. There's the Safari app and there's other web browser apps, right? Chrome and Firefox and Opera and everything. So how are they different than the Tumblr app? I mean, the Tumblr app lets you view online content. Browsers let you view online content. You know, can't you just say the Chrome app violates this because you go to a porn website? You know, so... Say it's not so. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, where do you draw the line there? I think this requires uh, some extensive research. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, the uh, but yeah, I I mean, I guess that could be why because that's a pretty big thing. If Apple says, "Hey, we're going to remove this app here," and they could look at their bottom line and say, "At all costs, we cannot let that happen," and go to an extreme like this. But uh, some somewhere, you know, some common sense has to prevail. The uh, um, a lot of people are predicting this is the end of Tumblr. Uh, because it's already, in a lot of ways, been fading, I think, in, in the same way that uh, sites like LiveJournal and even MySpace have been fading into the distant past very slowly. Uh, you know, there'll be a small uh, you know, cadre of users that continue to use them for various reasons, but their heyday is, is apparently well, well over. And, um, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. So, Kevin, I want to tangent a little bit uh, on the tech behind this. So you said that the, that the uh, archive team has an app that you can run, downloads whatever, you know, obviously they're probably trying to not duplicate, so they're selecting which things that you're going to download for them, mm-hmm. and then uploads it to archive.org. Yes. Well, if all of this stuff is streaming into archive.org from all these different places, why doesn't archive.org just do the downloads themselves? I believe the reason is, I mean, there, there is so much data. Uh, I believe it's easier to get it from distributed sources around the world. Um, also, they have done this many times for many other uh, uh, many other Geo websites, cities, maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah ge- going all the way back to GeoCities, but you know, they, they, I think they have like ten projects they're working on right now where they're just backing up websites. And some of these websites, and I, and I don't know if this has happened with Tumblr specifically, but many of these websites, when they see uh, a huge amount of downloads coming from one IP address, they block it. Well, that's, that's a good it. point. Yeah. So, say archive.org decides that they're going to, you know, just download all of you know, whatever, foo.com. Google Plus. Google Plus, exactly. <laughs> and and e- either in an automated way, there's a firewall uh, script that goes, wow, we're getting just massive hits from the, this IP address or this C block or whatever, automatic block. Or oftentimes what happens is a assistant administrator or or the, the CFO or somebody doesn't want the, their thing backed up, so they block it by hand. So when it's being downloaded by thousands of people around the world, it's harder to stop them from doing the good work that they're trying to do. I have an, another theory, and that is if you are concerned about a site going away quickly, mm-hmm. in other words, a site is going to you know, drop off the internet, be it a you know, specific Tumblelog or all of Tumblr, 
Um, it's conceivable that having lots and lots of different people downloading it, they can all then act as a delayed cache. So that they can, everybody can download the thing like in a day or in two days or in a week or whatever. Then if it takes another month or two to upload it all to, to the Internet Archive, it doesn't matter, even if, this, if the site happens to go away. Right. So um, Makes sense. The other thing I was I, I heard about for the for uh, the Tumblr uh, you know porn identification is that they're trying to throw some automated uh, warnings out at owners of some of this content, and they're getting it laughably wrong. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff that's being flagged as porn, you know, warning you that you know, you're going to lose your ability to post this stuff after the deadline. Um, that is just absolutely not even close to porn. So they're having that kind of t- those kind of technological issues as well as they try and, and race to this deadline. So I think it'll be very, very interesting to see exactly what happens on, on D-Day. I wonder why they're not just blocking those on the app. You know, label, label your content as adult. And then the app no longer accesses it, but it's still available online. That would make a lot more sense. It would be easy to do and uh, less prone to mistakes because somebody can go say, hey, wait a minute, mine got labeled as adult, but it's not, and appeal it. And then a couple of days later, hear back and say, oh, sorry, and you know, not much harm done. Um, and then it would appease Apple because you're just basically putting a content filter in, which is probably what Apple wants. So I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Yep. All right. Speaking of things that are kind of out there. <laughs> way out there. As out so there as it gets. Back in 2013, Voyager 1 hit the heliopause. So what's that? So when the sun is burning out there in space, it's sending out solar wind at a pretty high velocity. But eventually, it runs up against the galaxy's solar wind, the, everything else that's out there in the, in the hinterlands of space. So they wanted to figure out where that is because they don't know exactly. So in 2013, Voyager 1 crossed the boundary from the local space of our star, the sun, and the galaxy, the interstellar space. And the way they tell that is they, they see very um, minor changes in the transmissions they get because we're still talking to these spacecraft that were launched in the 70s, which is pretty amazing in itself. Mm. So they thought maybe they, that it happened a bunch of different times until they got such a really strong change in the signal and they went, ah, that's it. And that was September 12, 2013. Well, finally, Voyager 2, which is on a totally different path, also did that. Apparently, just in, in recent weeks here, it probably uh, took a lot of time to confirm it because it probably also had these similar little changes along the way. But when they finally see that, yeah, the data kind of falls off a cliff, they know for sure. So it looks like Voyager 2 has now done that, which I think is kind of cool because those are the thing, the only two spacecraft now that have gotten that far. Yes, I think uh, if I remember the reading correctly, it was November the 5th. They, they back calculated on what day yeah. that happened. So 
Yeah, that is pretty cool. The only two uh, two items to actually truly leave the what we would formally call the solar system. And and these spacecraft were launched at about the same time, although Voyager two ironically launched first, and uh, they were kind of on a, a parallel track for a while. But uh, one of them went one way, and the other one went the other way, just because of what they were trying to do with them that were a little bit different. So it's kind of neat that we've gotten two data points now that are really nowhere near each other because they were flying different paths. It's funny. The, uh, the article I read pointed out that uh, Voyager 2 at least is transmitting at 20 watts, which is, um, heck, that's not particularly strong here on Earth, but to get it is millions of miles from uh, now interstellar space. But we're line of sight, so it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> True. You know, like the, the radio in like a police car is yeah. about 50 watts. Right. So this, this is a big difference. Of course, one of the big features on Voyager is this gigantic antenna that's really tightening the beam to get the most out of that wattage. There's that, and uh, the antennas on the receiving end yes. are not only uh, very large, but also they've been getting you know, 30, 40, 50 years worth of improvements in the intervening time. So they're better right. than they were when, it, when they launched as well. Yeah, the workhorse of the Deep Space Network is these 34-meter diameter antennas, uh, but they each one of the stations, there's three stations around the world in uh, California, in Spain, in Australia, so mm-hmm. that no matter where the Earth is turned, they can see, at least with one of them, any point in the sky. So uh, those each have one 70 millimeter dish, not millimeter, 70 meter dish. So that's what they use when they really, really need to get a lot of gain. Do you know if they can combine them? In other words, I know that they can't, given the layout you yeah. described, they can't point all three of them at there at the same time, but can they point two of them at the same time and combine the signal? If I, good question. I'm not really sure. Um, they can certainly do it with, um, you know, two antennas at the same site because each site has multiple antennas. Sure, sure. But uh, I'm thinking that the distance, you know, ha- having some distance between them yeah. uh, has you. I actually don't know the answer to that. It's a good question. Yeah. So 20 watts from millions of miles away and still works. Yet there's Brilliant. still a couple spots. Cu- yeah. And yet there's still a couple spots in my house where I can't get my own Wi-Fi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Welcome to 2018. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. Well, in other welcome to 2018 news. <laughs> um, so, People have what I would call a love-hate relationship with the Microsoft Edge web browser. And it's mostly a hate relationship. (laughs) And that's mostly because uh, Microsoft, especially initially, tried very hard to ram it down our throats. It was the default browser. Um, It's the only browser, uh, unless you install some, uh, you know, kind of a a sidestepping hack. It's the only browser that Cortana will use. Um, There's just, uh, you know, uh, several annoyances with, with Microsoft Edge, not to mention the fact that, you know, here we are two years at least after Windows 10 release, and it's just now starting to come close to what most people would call feature parity with more modern browsers, uh, more current browsers. Well, Microsoft has apparently decided that, yep, we were right all along, 
and they are planning on replacing not Edge, the name will live on, but the guts are going to change. Rather than using the Edge HTML uh, rendering engine, the thing that actually interprets or translates HTML code into what you just see on the screen, they're going to replace it with Chromium. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because indeed it is the technology on which the Chrome browser, Google's Chrome browser is based. And of course, Chrome is the leader in terms of Windows-based internet browsers. In fact, they have something like over 50% market share when it comes to browsers. Many people have commented to me that Edge is a great, great browser for downloading Chrome. And that's exactly what they do. They, with a brand new Windows 10 install, they fire up Edge, they download Chrome, and they never look at Edge again. What's going to be interesting about this, to me at any rate, is that it may be a case of too little too late. Microsoft has, in a way, uh, what I said a couple years ago, is they've shot themselves in the foot by pushing Edge, a browser that nobody really wanted, over Internet Explorer, which they hid. It's still in Windows 10, but it's very well hidden, which basically encouraged everybody to switch to other browsers like Google Chrome or Firefox. And they recover. Will this be enough? I don't know. They're at least making what I would consider to be some of the right noises about the direction that it's headed. For example, uh, Edge Chromium-based edge, and I don't know what they're going to call it other than edge of some sort, but a Chromium-based edge. edge. I'm sorry? The shiny edge. Shiny edge, could be. Um, The the Chromium-based edge is going to support, apparently, Google Chrome browser extensions, which, in my thinking, is a, a step in exactly the right direction. Will it be enough is the question. My sense is it's probably too little too late, but I'm not sure. Do you guys have any thoughts? I just think the whole thing is interesting because the difference between Chrome and Chromium. Chrome is based on Chromium, which Google also created. It is an open source web browser project. So anybody can make a browser on this. And there, uh, Microsoft is far from being the first company other than Google to do so. Um, I do agree with you that it's, really neat because there's a lot of Chrome extensions that add a lot of stuff, a lot of features. So they're in a leg up by supporting that. So there's a question, but I think it's a little bit too little too late. Like you said, my question is, you know, what's, what's the compelling story for people to use edge instead of Chrome if they're both based on the same technology. And I don't know that there is one other than laziness. In other words, it's the, it's the browser that's there when you install windows 10, uh, unfortunately, it won't be the browser that's there until like sometime late next year. So there's still like two and a half years worth of, um, of inertia to overcome that. Uh, I'm just and not I, sure. I, I think I can see a, a use case for people who really hate Google. There's a, a growing groundswell that Google is evil. And yeah, they they're don't canceling want all our projects, right? But, you know, they, they already have a choice with Firefox. Exactly. Most of the Google haters have already switched to Firefox. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is definitely for the the large majority of users that don't know or don't care, right? Mm-hmm. They just they just want to browse the web. They don't want to be part of this little browser war that's been going on for 20 years. So they get Edge, 
with their you know computer and they're just going to use that and that this is good for them because they're going to be uh, using a better browser experience it's also good for people using Chrome because one of the problems with using Chrome or any other browser except the official Microsoft one is there are going to be a few things out there that for one reason or another are aligned with Microsoft and they only work for using the official Microsoft browser whether it was IE before or Edge so that's going to go away right with this change you won't run into some odd you know financial site or something like that that says you are required to use Microsoft Edge to access this it's kind of funny because the i'm also hearing the reverse that one of the reasons people don't like edge is that a lot of sites that work with chrome don't render properly in edge right well yeah and not rendering properly not working at all too right the, the typical thing in my experience has been that if something only works in the microsoft browser um, it's just a message that says, sorry, you can't access this. The other side of the coin is something that renders wrong, you know, because then you'd much rather have something rendering wrong, but at least you could see some data there on the screen and get some information um, and uh, you know, hit a help button or something like that or a contact form on the site rather than just state, nope, you can't go here, um, which was always the very annoying thing about these sites that used proprietary um, Internet Explorer and then Edge browser stuff. Right. So that, that'll be great that that's going away. And it just, it's basically almost like a, you know, Microsoft just admitting that Chrome wins. Uh, but we don't need to actually give people Chrome. We can actually create our own Chromium browser. Right. And so they, they get assimilated rather than losing. <laughs> They're assimilated into it. And because... Let's face it, the, the browser war in terms of a financial gain of, of like, you know, making money off of having a browser that's proprietarily yours, that's over. Right. They're not making money, whether it's Edge, the current Edge browser or a Chromium Edge browser. It doesn't really matter. So why not just assimilate into the Chromium thing and um, spend less money but still maintain face by having the little E in the, you know, E icon there for edge. Um, so most users don't even notice. There's so difference. you're saying basically that Microsoft has realized resistance is futile. Exactly. It's funny because there's actually one other scenario that I thought of where this kind of sort of makes a different kind of sense. And that's the corporate environment. Corporations hate the fact that you can install other software on Windows. And one of the things I think that they really would like is to be able to just say, hey, here's Windows 10, set it up, don't add a thing, and you're good to go. They can't do that today because Edge doesn't work everywhere or it doesn't support all the extensions they want or whatever. But if it's a Chromium-based browser that comes with Windows by default, that's one less thing or one more thing that they can lock down and prevent their users from doing. It's interesting. I was reading a, um, I think it was a Quora discussion of all things, about Windows 10 S, which is the locked down version of Windows where you can only get applications through the Microsoft Store. You can't actually install anything else from anywhere else. And the, the, the question being asked was, well, why are they doing that? I don't want that. And you're right. Most quote unquote normal people don't. But corporations, um, situations where you have a large installed base that you have to manage. They love that kind of control. And this might be a case where uh, this is another, just an inch, another toe in the door that helps corporations more tightly manage the installations of Windows across their, across their network. Good theory. 
Yep. It is only a theory. No, I, I think that's pretty solid as a theory. I mean, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. A lot of, lot of Windows computers out there that people are using that don't own them, you know, people who just get them at work. And the IT department does not want to have to field calls where you say, I'm having trouble with a website. And the first question has to be, well, what browser, what browser are you using? I yeah, just want exactly. to be able to say, okay, well, we know you're on the new edge Chromium thing because that's right. the only one you can have. So let's get down to it. Yeah. Right. Cool. Cool. So Gary, you had a, an interesting issue we were talking about before the show started. Yeah. Yeah. Before the show started, I, and I posted something uh, to my, uh, my inner group, my, my Mac, inner Mac most group called club Mac most about this. Um, so I have uh, something I think all maybe all of us have is a ScanSnap scanner, Fujitsu ScanSnap. They're awesome. They are awesome, and this this one is awesome. Uh, except it's about to become the opposite of awesome. Uh, bought it a long time ago, and for those that don't know, these scanners are the ones that you could just you feed tons of paper into them, and they'll scan and very quickly end up as documents on your computer. Uh, I was able to go paperless, I don't know when it was, eight years ago or so maybe, with this thing, taking years and years worth of, of bills and invoices and all sorts of things with my business, dumped them into this scanner and just ate them up, uh, spit out PDFs, and um, was able to then uh, shred and recycle so many boxes of paper. And then it, since then, it's been paperless. Just any anything I get in the mail, say, or you know some document or something i just scan it and then i toss the original so everything's digital and that's great except that this great device which still works just as well as it did on day one uh, is about to become just a piece of trash uh in nine months it'll become a piece of trash and that's because uh, mac os mojave still runs what are called 32-bit apps they're old uh, apps that have been compiled to run on 30, in 32-bit mode rather than 64-bit mode. And Apple has repeatedly warned software developers that eventually we're only going to allow 64-bit apps. Um, and with Mojave, they said, okay, this is it. This is the last operating system we're going to make that supports old 32-bit apps. And there's even a warning. If you're running a 32-bit app, it gives you a warning saying, hey, this app uh, is going to need to be updated before next year. So the special software that does all the scanning with this Fujitsu scanner will uh, become obsolete because it's a 32-bit app. Fujitsu doesn't make the scanner anymore, and they the app is 32-bit, and from what I found, they have no plans to update the app, which means when I update to whatever follows Mojave, I won't be able to use this scanner anymore. Now, to be clear, this scanner I have is the ScanSnap S1500M. It is not the popular iX500, which is a newer version of basically the same scanner. If you've got that one, so far it looks good. The, the iX500 will continue to be supported. It, I think the software is already new for the iX500. It's different than what I'm using. Um, so it's only older ScanSnap ones. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to miss the scanner, <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to, of course, suddenly not be paperless. Uh, I don't want to spend the money to buy another one because... I mean, they're like $500, uh, $550. Yeah, because they're really good quality pieces. I don't regret for a second getting this one. I never would have been able to go and do the backlog of paper to even get to this point. And also, of course, well, nowadays, in 2018, 
I get a lot less paper than I used to, right? I, everything's online billing, everything's done online, email and all that stuff. It's, there's very little I get that's paper anymore. Um, so my workload of, of things I need to scan is way down from what it used to be. And I do have a solution. Instead of buying another scanner, I'm going to do the modern thing, and I'm using my phone <laughs> to scan in documents. Uh, so, if you, and, you know, a lot of people haven't experienced this, but this is something in the last couple of years that has kind of just happened. There are apps now where you use your phone's camera and you use that as a scanner. And it, they're rather clever apps because what they do is they will figure out that, okay, you're not looking straight down at the document. Um, you're at an angle, but that's okay. I'm going to adjust it. I'm going to change the perspective of the photograph and make it, you know, like you just took a photograph directly above the document. And not only that, but they'll recognize when there's a document in the in view and actually automatically take it. So it's not like you have to position your ca your phone's camera, get it perfectly in a little rectangle, and then hit a button. You just kind of move your phone in front of it get it in the general area and it will just automatically take the shot and it will do that for multiple pages. So you flip the page and it takes the next one. You flip the page, it takes the next one, say, okay. And then it saves a three page PDF, uh, scanned in. Right. And a PDF, not a JPEG. Yeah. PDF. And it compressed just like you would expect in a scanner. As a matter of fact, on the, on the Apple side of things, uh, they've built this into iOS um, so it works really well. Like in the notes app, we'll do this. You can say add a note that's a scan and it will automatically go into this mode and scan things. And something new, which really makes this uh, as a possible, you know, scan snap replacement for me is something called continuity camera. And this is a feature of Mac OS Mojave and a feature of iOS 12 that you can go in to um, the you can go into the Finder or you know many different apps, and you can actually say import, you know, from my iPhone, and you can choose photo or scan, and you choose scan, and your iPhone suddenly comes alive. It could be it could be locked. Suddenly the screen comes on, and the camera is on, and it says like you know position to scan or something, and you then position your phone above the document, and it takes the picture. And the result goes to your Mac. It never stops on your phone. It never ends up in your camera roll or anything like that. It's just using your iPhone as a as a scanner, um, and it works really great. Uh, you know, it's pretty nice quality. It's quick. It does multi-page PDFs, all of that, um, and it's using uh, the kind of the AirDrop uh, kind of technology. So it's using Wi-Fi and Bluetooth to basically go directly from the phone to the Mac without requiring you being on the same Wi-Fi network or anything. Um, and it's authenticating through using the same Apple ID on both. So you have to have two-factor authentication turned on, but in doing all that, it becomes no nonsense. You don't have to log on or unlock your phone or anything. And I've been trying that for the last few weeks, where it's just like instead of the scan snap, I put the document on my desk, and I do this, and I end up with a PDF. And my conclusion is, it takes me about the same amount of time. But How big a document have you been doing? Like, what's the biggest one? Uh, I've just been doing all 8.5 by 11s. No, I mean a uh, number of oh. pages. Oh, I did one that was several pages long. I don't remember if you have four or five pages, so I haven't really done anything. Yeah, the, the scenario that concerns me the most, and the, where the, the scan snap and devices of its ilk still 
kind of sort of win is the ability to take like a 20 page double sided yeah. document and just say, push a button and magic happens. Um, it's interesting. I know that on the Android side, uh, Adobe actually has an app uh, to act as a scanner that does a lot of what you've been talking about, which I thought was yeah, and that's uh, on that a really good um, you know leverage of, of something that they're already known for the uh, the PDF format. So yeah, they have uh, you can do that too. Uh, I have that Adobe app on my iPhone as well. It's just that the continuity camera thing being sure. able to skip my phone. Now the great thing is, is that I can still use my phone. You know, I can use say that Adobe app or the Notes app on on my iPhone if I'm ever not near my computer. And I want to scan something in, which is really useful. I mean, if you're traveling or, you know, you a receipt at a restaurant sure. or anything, you just scan it in. And then I could transfer it later on, right. uh, which is something, of course, I couldn't do at all with, this, with the scanner that's just on my desk. I, I suspect... Um, actually, so you're just scanning to your desktop, right? So, I've, like you said, I've got essentially the same scanner, but I've got it uh, hooked up uh, on the PC side to Evernote. So things that get scanned... Mm. get get dropped into Evernote as PDFs and then automatically show up, you know, everywhere I've got Evernote installed. But the reverse is also true. If I'm out at a restaurant and I'm getting a receipt, um, I take a picture of it in Evernote with, you know, the camera and it automatically goes into the same bucket that everything else went into uh, without even thinking about it. Right. And uh, yeah, so that's true. So, um, yeah, either way. It, it, yeah, I suspect what you're asking about speed. I, I think the speed probably does degrade with larger documents. Like, right. I, I think a 20-page document, the scan snap's going to win every time. Yeah. With a one-page document, I may actually be able to beat the scan snap <laughs> That's with true. my phone. In my case, I have to walk across the room, and right mm -hmm. there, you've lost the time, right? <laughs> exactly. So, it's, so, there's, so there's that. But the, the bottom line is, is if, you know, if scanners were 50 bucks, then I might get a new one, but I'm not going to spend $500 right. when it looks like almost all my needs can be met with my, um, with my phone. And of course, for people that haven't yet gone paperless, it's an interesting time to try to do it because, you know, if you realize that if, you know, you're to have a, a, an iPhone or an Android phone, um, you know, you can basically with a cheap app or even a free app, you can start scanning in your stuff. Um, you know, right. you don't have to get a scanner anymore to... to a lot of people get nervous going, going paperless because they don't have the, that thing that they can touch and feel and know that they have a copy of. Uh, my my counter-argument always has been, uh, yeah, sure, uh, but if you know, anything ever happens to that piece of paper, it's gone forever. What you're doing and what I'm doing uh, you know, we're backed up, you know, three ways from Sunday and it'd be actually difficult for me to lose an image that I have scanned in this manner. So I did want to offer one alternative that might lengthen the life of your scanner. Stop upgrading. Uh, <laughs> get a PC. Yeah, don't you have an old Macintosh yeah. sitting around? Yeah, no, I do. I do have an old, you know, I mean, I, I will have an old Mac sitting around somewhere. And uh, so I could decide that I'm going to, in addition to keeping that old Mac or a couple Macs in, the in a closet, I could add this scan snap to that pile of stuff. You know, I'm really kind of getting allergic to keeping old stuff around. Um, I don't want to, I just don't want to do that. So I don't know what I'm going to do yet when this thing finally doesn't work with my, my computers that are always on and, and updated. Um, whether I will recycle it or 
I don't know. I, I was actually thinking of uh, emailing Fujitsu. I, don't, I wouldn't expect a response, but to see if there was any kind of um, way that they will recycle it for me, as some tech companies have been known to do. But I, I fear that either I'm not going to get an answer or I'm going to get a kind of, oh, we'll give you a $25 coupon off of a, you know, a right. and, future and, and, Fujitsu purchase or something. And would you, would, my question is, would you really consider buying another one? I know you've been happy no. with it, but if, no. if, okay, if you didn't have the fallback of using your phone, would you consider uh, getting another one when the company created a good product, but didn't support it for as long as you needed it to. You know, I'm of two minds of that because on the one hand, I, I see their point that, I mean, they haven't produced this model in a long time. I don't know when they stopped producing this model and went to the IX 500, but there was, it was many years ago. And you know, at some point you have to stop supporting it. Um, maybe I, I lean towards that. They should have at least come out with a 64 bit version before they stop supporting it. You know, it's not like, it's not like, oh, we, we don't know what's in the future. We don't know what we could possibly add to the software to make it live. No, they knew years and years ago yeah. that they would need to produce a 64-bit version for this to go in, into the future. So, it, which is, makes it different than other things. It's not, un, un, it wasn't an unexpected change. Not a big surprise. I, I'm in a similar situation with my scanner. Um, I have an Epson GTS 80 that I bought uh, almost exactly six years ago, actually in, in 2012. Um, and I still use it all the time. Um, I've scanned tens of thousands of pages of, of computer history with it. And I uploaded to internet archive and this thing has been a workhorse um, and it still works great. And then I noticed uh, the software is like the scanning software is getting a little flinky. Like I, I start scanning at just half a page and then I have to like move the mouse and then it will continue scanning the rest of my, and I have to, yeah. And I noticed the software hasn't been updated since 2014. And so it still works pretty okay, but I can see the light of the train heading towards me that it, it seems that Epson has maybe abandoned this piece of hardware and uh, it's going to stop working maybe at the next OS upgrade. And, uh, you know, but it still works great and until one day it will suddenly won't. And uh, I, yes, like you said, they can't support hardware forever, but, you know, it's only six years old. It still works great. I, I will feel pretty annoyed and uh, like not a- jump at buying another Epson uh, scanner if, this one just dies for really no good reason other than their laziness. As I alluded to earlier in my case, um, I don't think I'd want to get rid of the scanner. Uh, my experience with uh, the scanning apps on my phone has been, it's, you know, they're okay, but yeah. but they still leave a little bit to be desired. Yeah. Uh, the scanner still ends up with a better result. Like I said, though, uh, I have a computer set aside. It's actually a Microsoft Surface first edition. So it's the very first uh, uh, tablet that Microsoft put out in the Windows 8 days. It's honestly not good for anything else. It runs Windows 10. It never just, was. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it wasn't really that great a computer to begin with, but it runs scanning software. It runs the, the Fujitsu software. It runs Evernote. It runs the Epson software because I also have a flatbed scanner connected to it. So it's like this dedicated purpose device sitting off in a corner of my office for scanning. 
and I'm happy to let that sit. And if that means that that machine, for example, may not get an OS upgrade, fine. It can stay back at, you know, the current version of Windows 10, or even if I had to revert it to like Windows 7, I could do that just to keep the the hardware running. I've got no problem with that. Uh, In my case, I suspect the 3264-bit thing is a little different on Windows because I I honestly don't believe Microsoft could ever make the uh, the call to stop supporting 32-bit applications or 32-bit drivers for that matter. So my suspicion is that that specific issue would never be an issue on, on the Windows platform. But nonetheless, there's always something that's going to come up that, you know, some version of Windows 10 will break it in such a way that they're not going to fix. Uh, in which case, like I said, I just won't upgrade that Windows 10 or I'll you know, revert it back to a Windows 7 and, and let it go from there. And I just looked, I've had mine since 2007, still cranking along after 11 years. Nice. That's, that's pretty tough to say about most tech these days. Indeed. Yeah. I'm thinking yours is probably the S1500. I don't know. I'd have to look. Oh, okay. um, yeah. But I'm, I'm in a Windows environment. I don't know if there's different models or they just use different software. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So this is, uh, well, well, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I probably will you know, retire it. And if I can't uh, get Fujitsu to take it back somehow, I'll just take it to Best Buy and hope that, you know, I, I talk to the right person. They don't charge me 10 bucks to drop it off. Usually, <laughs> well, yeah. Cause it's, you know, that's kind of thing. If you're supposed to pay for say monitors and everything. Interesting. Do you guys, so that um, brings it's, it's up- free if you abandon it in a cardboard box outside the store. Actually, <laughs> that's true. Out here at any rate, um, our Goodwill stores, the donation centers, really? many of them will do electronics recycling and they simply don't charge. You just drop it off and they oh, do. Oh, lucky. So. We've, I don't know how, so you got, we all live in different cities and, um, you know, where I am, Denver actually is one of the worst, I think, because they have a law saying that you cannot throw away electronics, which is a good law should not throw away electronics, but then they didn't go do the other half and provide any way for you to recycle them. So it's up to private companies to recycle them. And most will charge, uh, best, uh, staples and best buy, I think will take a lot of electronics for free just to get you in the store, but not supposedly not screens, right? Screens are something they don't want to. And you know, in reality, it's a mixed thing. You ask 10 people, who tried to take a mon- old monitor to Staples, for instance, and five of them will say, oh, I just walked right in and dropped it off. There's no problem. And the other five said, nope, I'm sorry. It's going to cost you 10 bucks or something like hmm. that. So it- it's annoying. I was visiting family in Philadelphia, and uh, they have these recycling centers that are just amazing. You just drive up into them, you, like actually into them. They're like big parking lots. And there are literally mounds of there's a mound that's TV sets. There's a mound that's like home appliances, a mound that's tires, everything you could possibly imagine. There's a different pile for it. There's a guy in the front with a clipboard, and you could just you say, I've got an old guitar, and he's like, guitars is the fifth you know, thing on the right. And you go over there, and sure enough, there's a pile of guitars. Bass and, or lead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's amazing, and it's totally free. It's drive up, open your truck, put the thing out into the pile, and drive away. Totally free. And uh, as little hassle as possible, which is great. And, you know, the opposite here in Denver, where it's as much hassle as possible. <laughs> and because the, these companies that do it are like out in industrial areas, you know, so you're, you're driving around trying to find these places and they have weird hours, you know, Monday through Thursday for, you know, from noon to 
two or something. You know, it just it's really uh, annoying. So it's a problem when I end up with something like this scan snap <laughs> scanner and I'm like, well, it can't do anything with it anymore. What do I do with it? I'm tempted. There's a crawl space, you know, in my house. And I'm tempted to just stick it up there and pass the football to the next owner of the house. Leave it for the archaeologists. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, I just checked uh, Amazon. Amazon keeps your purchase records forever. Um, I have a, a ScanSnap S510, and I bought it in October of 2008. So it's just now over 10 years old and still going strong. Now, I looked in my orders, and I didn't find mine. I know I bought it from, from them. So let me uh, – it's one word, right? Can't snap. Can't snap. I, I searched for Fujitsu, actually, because that was a little easier. Um, I found mine, and it's uh, December thirteenth, twenty ten. So I am. I was right in eight year. It'll be eight years in three days. There you go. Happy birthday! So, to so it'll la- it won't last me nine years before it gets to its ninth birthday. I, it, but it won't be the hardware that fails, which is interesting. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, and it's kind of impressive, right? Because on the other hand, if, say, six years down the road, this thing had broken down, considering the amount of paper I've shoved through it, right? Right. I mean, it, you wouldn't it's, think twice. it's a mechanical device, right? It's yep. got wheels and gears and all this. If it had lasted six years, I would have said, boy, it really took a beating and it, and it lasted a while and I'd be happy with it. It just makes me mad that it's like still work. They built it so well. <laughs> it still <laughs> works so well. And it's going to be the software that's going to let it down. So. Ah, well. Yeah. First world problems. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. So. Cool. So Kevin, did you want to touch on the, uh, yeah, I, I'm interested in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I saw an interesting story a couple of weeks ago that said, uh, Washington DC uh, has made GitHub the authoritative s- digital source for its laws. And uh, I read an interesting article, Ars Technica, uh, about a gentleman who, you know, is a lawyer or something, he does, he reads laws, and he found a, a typo in a law. Uh, and uh, it was just a, a small typo. And he, since this is on GitHub, he could make a change, do a pull request post request, whatever it's called, to, to put it into GitHub, and then it was accepted, and that's it. His change went into the law um, because the official canonical source of the laws is the digital text in GitHub, and that's how uh, DC has decided to, to do things. So now to clarify for, for some of our listeners, GitHub is essentially designed as what's called a source code control or source sharing system. Mm-hmm. It's normally used for the, the software that we run. For example, the, the open source project Chromium that we were talking about earlier, the actual source code for that is stored in a, what's called a GitHub repository. And what that means is anybody can make a copy of the source code and anybody can um, I forget the term, you're right, push or pull, which it is, but you can push in or you can make a change. The saving grace here that, you know, f- f- uh, when it comes to the law is that that change has to be approved by somebody. Uh, you can't just make random changes to the law and then claim, yeah, but sure. it's, it's not. It's not like a Wikipedia situation where anybody. Right, right, right. It's, it's right. much more controlled than that, yeah. but it is an interesting use of the technology. Yeah. Um, I thought was super interesting. And, and as a counterpoint to that, I'd also seen a story recently where uh, the state of Georgia was trying to copyright some of its laws 
And then the only way to get a copy of the law was to buy a very expensive printed book. And a, uh, a gentleman named Carl Malamud, who has been working for years and years and years at an organization called uh, publicresource.org uh, to make laws more easily accessible. So he's, he's been scanning laws that are uh, uh, um, uh, bills and things that are only in, in paper form. He puts them online. That's kind of his, his, his shtick with his, his little nonprofit. And he was sued by someone in Georgia saying, uh, no, these laws are copyrighted. He's like, you can't, you can't do that. I mean, you, you can't say that these are the rules that people need to follow and then not make them available. Um, and he recently won a court case uh, saying uh, that, that indeed state law, state code can't be copyrighted. Anyway, so this is just as a counterpoint, a total opposite end of, end of the spectrum of like, let's put everything on, on GitHub and you can see all the changes and you can, everyone can access it and download copies to their computer versus we're going to put it in a book that you have to spend thousands of dollars for. Right. Yeah, and I love the way he did it too. He, he didn't just scan it and put it online. No, he put them on USB sticks and sent one to every legislator in Georgia. <laughs> and one of them was the bare scan, and the other one was it all encoded into XML. I mean, mm. what an awesome idea. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Just, you know, the way, what they should have done in the first place, but... Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's all. I thought it was two interesting ways to handle a, a, an important problem. Yeah. And it sounds like in both cases, the right thing seems to be happening, at least for now. Yes. At least for now. All right. Is that a place to wrap then? Sounds like, like a yeah. fine, fine place. All right. Well, let me scroll down. The <laughs> show notes for this week are tehpodcast.com slash teh52. And if you don't have a podcast app that automatically downloads these episodes, you can get an email notification by signing up on the website at tehpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.